Well, Merry Christmas to you. As you know, we're having a <clears throat> Christmas Eve service on the 24th. If you can come, you're welcome to come that night. We'll have the Lord's Supper and have some sharing and some singing, so uh, <clears throat> we look forward to that. This morning, uh, I'm in the next to the last part of the series on the mystery of godliness. So if you have God's Word, find 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16. <clears throat> I'm going to read it to you here. Paul writes to Timothy as he shares God's pillar and buttress of the truth, which we talked about, which is the church. What are we to proclaim? And Paul writes, Great indeed, we confess, is the mystery of godliness. And this was a New Testament hymn, probably one of the first hymns some scholars believe that was written in the church. And Paul quotes this. He was manifest in the flesh, vindicated by the Spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, and taken up into glory. I've summarized those phrases by <clears throat> trying to give a word for each. And the first we talked about last time, incarnation, God made in flesh. Second of all, vindication. What does it mean that you are vindicated? It means that you are proven to be true, you are justified, you are endorsed, what you said about yourself or what you did was verified and there is no question. You know, Christ was often called all kinds of things, but in the end, he was vindicated, not only in his own human spirit, but by God's spirit, the Holy Spirit, who empowered him to do everything that God planned for him to do. The third thing is visualization. It says here he was seen by angels. There's lots of things in the New Testament that talk about the spiritual world that you and I can't see. God hasn't necessarily opened our eyes to see angels, demons, other sons of God, different things that happen in the heavenlies. Paul talks about this in Ephesians 6. We wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities, powers, rulers of the darkness <clears throat> of this world. So... The New Testament declares that when Christ died, something happened in the spiritual realm. We talked about this last week. One of the things that Christ did when he died in the flesh was he defeated the power of Satan. Something happened, folks, in the stellar heavens that we don't know every detail about. But Christ won, and he showed himself. He was visualized by the spiritual world. I'll skip number four because that's what I'm going to preach on this morning. Number five believed on in the world that talks about regeneration wherever this message has been preached that christ became flesh he died on the cross he paid the penalty for sin guess what's happened people have believed it and then finally the ascension he was taken up into glory and we know that he is soon returning again i want to focus this morning on number four <clears throat> the proclamation the, the word here, proclaimed among the nations, is the word for preached. Caruso, to preach, to herald, to speak with force, to preach a message. So when we think about proclaiming God's message, what do we think? And Josh, you're going to have to advance my slide again because it is not advancing. Well, Paul says in Galatians chapter 4, which is where I'm going to turn this morning, if you'd like to look there, that the message that was preached was preached to the nations and it was believed. Well, what is the message we preach? Well, the church is commissioned to preach the gospel. 
And you know, if you've listened to preachers very long, me included, sometimes you realize how bored you can get with preaching. I want to share with you a little funny that I read this week. It's about the days of John Wesley. I wasn't fubbing while I was doing that. I, I have to look at my phone for it to open up. Listen to what this says. In the days of John Wesley, oftentimes lay preachers with very limited education would sometimes conduct church services. One man used Luke chapter 19, verse 21 as his text for the day. Lord, I feared you because you are an austere man. Not knowing what the word austere meant because of the man's education and apparently misreading it, he thought the text spoke of an oyster man or one who gathers oysters. The lay preacher explained how that a diver must grope in the dark, freezing water to retrieve oysters. In his attempt, he cuts his hands on the sharp edge of the shells. After he obtains an oyster, he rises to the surface, clutching it in his torn and bleeding hand. The preacher then added, Christ descended from glory into heaven, into sinful human society in order to retrieve humans and bring them back up with him to the glory of heaven. His torn and bleeding hands are a sign of the value he placed on the object of his quest. Now, do y'all think that's good preaching? Please say no. Nevertheless, at the end of the service, when the man quit, 12 people came to Christ. Later that night, an arduent Bible student approached John Wesley about this uneducated man who had preached in the pulpit. And he told him about this unschooled preacher that he was too ignorant to even know the meaning of the passage or the word that he preached on. The Oxford-educated Wesley simply replied, Never mind that. The Lord got a dozen oysters tonight. Preaching has taken different forms by different people through different ways, but somehow or another, miraculously, God is able to bless the message of the Savior. And he does that. Whether the text is used correctly or incorrectly, it's amazing how the Holy Spirit uses his own word and sometimes things taken completely out of context to bring glory to himself. So that kind of silences the mouth of every person. And of course, that is my love and my passion is hermeneutics to make sure the Bible is interpreted correctly. But you often have to bow the knee to what God chooses to use. But we're going to talk today about Paul's message that was preached among the nations. What did he preach? Well, I'm going to go to the famous text. Now, I know I've preached this before, but I'm going to do it a little different this morning. One of the things that Paul shared was that God sent Christ, the one he preached among the nations, at just the right time. Listen to the text. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive the adoption as sons. I'm going to continue reading here. And because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. Did you hear that this morning? If you have trusted Christ as your Savior, you're no longer a slave. You are a son. And not just a son or a child, 
but you're also an heir. You know what it means to be an heir? When I was in Bible college, uh, I quit my job here at Christiansburg, went to Winston-Salem, and was there, didn't have a job, started Bible college, and the Lord led uh, an opportunity for me to work for an attorney in Winston-Salem, up in the top of a building, big, huge building. And so one of the things that he would do, he was an estate attorney. There were like six or eight lawyers in the firm. And he also offered me a job, did you know that, to, to be, become one of his uh, workers. Would pay for my school and everything because I could talk to people. Well, I was able to set in on several of these trustee and trust encounters when someone would sit and read a trust. If you have never had the experience to sit in a law firm when someone reads a trust to heirs and people who are about to inherit fortunes, if you ever want to see humanity at its best, a lawyer's office is a great place to see it because it really becomes manifest. This morning, I want you to imagine what Paul says here, that you as a child of God are an heir of Jesus Christ. You are an heir of God through Christ. Now let me ask you a question. What does God own? What does God have? What has God told us that we would be heirs of? Do you know that this morning you are an heir of God? If you know Christ as your Savior, can you imagine what it's going to be like when we actually inherit something we can't lose? You know, everything you have now, by the way, except your, your salvation, you are going to say goodbye to one day. Let me assure you, you are going to say goodbye. But there's coming a day when we will inherit something we will never lose. Listen to what Paul says. When the fullness of time had come. I read an article recently about a man writing about timing. And basically, when you think about it, timing is everything. Did you know that? If you're a leader, when you present something, it can be a great idea. But if you're wrong on the timing, you're a poor leader. And in life, we can make certain decisions to do things. But if we're wrong on the timing, even though it might be a good idea, it could be disastrous. Sometimes... When you feel like you deserve more money and you approach your employer and you ask them for a raise. It's not necessarily wrong to ask for a raise. But do you know that if you ask them at the wrong time, that can be disastrous? So life is full of waiting on the right time. But in just the right time, God sent forth his son, born of a woman. Now imagine this. In third heaven, the decision was made that the second person of the Godhead, though he was rich, fully God, all the glories of heaven, all the worship of the angels, he was going to come in a virgin's womb and be born as a man. We talked about this last week. To take upon our nature, he would become a man in God's time. There are a few lessons we learn about this, and it's this. First of all, God has a timetable for everything. Did you know that? Everything. He had a timetable for Christ and His appearance. He has a timetable for our life. You know, it is appointed unto man once to die. It's an appointment. And after this, the judgment. 
we oftentimes ask the question, why didn't God send Christ sooner? And here's the answer, because God has a timetable for everything. Everything. Second lesson we learn is that God does not tell us the details of his timetable in advance. Aren't you glad of that, by the way? Aren't you glad that when you turn 18, God doesn't tell you everything that's going to happen in your life? You know, if he did, we would be shocked, wouldn't we? Ecclesiastes 3, which I was reminded of this week, tells us that in everything there's a time. There's a time to be born, there's a time to die, there's a plant to time, there's a time to pluck. Everything has a time. There's a time to hug, there's a time to not hug. Maybe that's corona, I don't know. But God doesn't tell us all of the details in advance. Why? Well, I think there's several reasons. First of all, it would totally overwhelm us. If you knew what, what was in the future of your life in advance, like me, you would probably be completely overwhelmed. I shared this morning in the first service an illustration. Had God told me at 18 years of age that my father would die in 10 years, I, I absolutely could not have believed it. I, I just wouldn't have believed it. Your father will die and your whole family will be changed forever. I, I couldn't have handled it. I wouldn't have known what to do. So there's several reasons God doesn't tell us. First of all, we'd be overwhelmed. Second, we would run from it. We'd try to change God's plan, wouldn't we? Maybe we would do this or do that and try to make it to be something different. Or we would just try to change the bad parts. You know, one of the things you learn about life and things that happen is Oftentimes, the things that we learn from the greatest are the hard things. We don't often learn from things that are smooth or cause no pain in life. But things that cause pain and cause scars oftentimes teach us. You know, every time I look at my right thumb, I am reminded that that is enough. When I was about nine years old, my dad bought me a machete. And I'd go over beside our house and hack down all the weeds and the small trees. Well, I wanted it razor sharp. So I got a file and put it in a vise, and I began to file. And my dad would say, that's enough. That's enough. Well, sure enough, I missed with the file and went right down the middle of my thumbnail. And fortunately, because he knew what he was doing, he saved half of my thumb. Put it back on. I didn't even know I'd cut it. I had the machete so sharp. But you know... I learn from that because every time I sharpen a blade, I learn when it's enough. And I also learn to keep my finger out of the way. But the most important reason God doesn't tell us all the details in advance, are you ready for this? Is because he wants us to trust him every day of our life. Every day. We have to trust him for tomorrow. You know, we don't know what tomorrow brings, do we? I told the story this morning, I won't mention the name, but of a certain man who worked 65 years of his life, lives right here in our community, waiting to retire. Retired and a few weeks later discovered cancer had been lying in his body. Now he is just moments, hours, minutes, we don't know, away from entering God's presence. 
we don't know what this afternoon will bring. And God doesn't always tell us, does he, the details. The third point about God's timing is he's never in a hurry and he's never late. Now that's hard to reconcile because when we think about somebody not being in a hurry but not being late, it kind of challenges the way we think. But that's exactly what God did, especially in the birth of our Savior. He wasn't in a hurry, but he wasn't late. In the fullness of time, God sent forth his Son. And then, not only is he never in a hurry and never late, but God's timing is not always convenient. Did you know that? Have you ever discovered that about God's time? Maybe you wait and wait and wait, and when God allows something to happen, it doesn't happen in the most convenient time. I think about Mary. Here was this young girl, betrothed to Joseph, appeared by an angel that she's going to be carrying God. All of the scorn, and all of a sudden, a government ruler rises up and says, you go back to your hometown, and you go to the courthouse, and you register for a census. Now, ladies... Can you imagine riding a mule or a donkey nine months pregnant all the way across old hills in Jerusalem and having to go for a census because the government officials told you that you would have to do that? Can you imagine? That changed the way you vote, wouldn't it? And nevertheless, this is exactly what happened to Mary. She had to go. She had no choice. And she went. That wasn't necessarily convenient. Now, you would think if you were carrying God, you would at least be able to go to Montgomery's ward over here in those nice big rooms in the back and have all those nurses around you. She didn't. She had a cattle trough to give birth in. God's timing is not always convenient. You know, 2020 hasn't been convenient for us, has it? A year ago, nobody would have ever dreamed that this global whatever you want to call it has hit us, but whatever you call it, it has impacted us. And listen to me, folks. Life will never go back to normal. It won't. And this is a reality that you and I are going to have to face. Life will never go back to normal it's kind of like the event at 9 11 the airlines was changed forever life and society will be changed forever but you know what even in the midst of that even in the midst of this inconvenience we as god's people have to understand the things that we can celebrate the the opportunities god gives us to share and let me be frank with you there are a lot of good things that God is allowing to come out of this, especially for His Word and His people. Sure, it's been inconvenient to a lot of us. Sure, it's caused problems and ripples, and sure, it's caused some pain. But I want to tell you something. There's a lot of good. There's a lot of silver lining in the midst of whatever you call this. And Almighty God is at work. He is working. So even though 2020 may be something we want to have in the past, 2021, let me remind you, is going to have its share of inconveniences too. If you think that just the turn of a calendar and a new second on the 31st of December at 11.59, if you think that one second and a new calendar is going to change inconveniences in life, 
let me ring the bell for you this morning. That's not going to do it. But nevertheless, it is real. Our life will be challenged by inconveniences, but just remember this. God has a timetable. And remember the last thing, that at the right time, whenever God wants, He can do anything. And He can do it instantly. Did you know that? God can change anything, and God can change anything instantly. So what does that mean? In one millisecond, one bat of an eye, God can change our whole circumstance. But until that time, until we're waiting on God to do whatever it is in our life, give us a child, allow us to be married, give us this job, whatever it is in our own personal life that we are waiting on, remember this, when you are waiting, you are in God's waiting room. And the greatest lessons in life are not learned by getting what we want when we want it. The greatest lessons in life are learned when we're sitting in God's waiting room. One man wrote this, When you're in a hurry for something to happen and God isn't, that is God's waiting room. When you are in God's waiting room, you tend to wonder if what you're waiting on will ever happen at all. But God doesn't need a lot of time to do what He wants to do in your life and in your world. Israel waited hundreds of years for the Messiah to come, but the Bible says... When the time was right, God sent His Son. When the time is right in your life, Almighty God will answer your prayers as well. And even 2020 can't get in the way of God's perfect plan for your life and your world. Isn't that wonderful? God has a time. So the three things I want you to remember, first of all, is timing. The second thing is redemption. Now, what in the world does it mean to redeem? Well, you can look up there and read it. To set us free by paying a price. Without boring you in a big language lecture this morning, the word redeem in its base form means to purchase or to buy. To buy something and to make it yours. Do you all know the beautiful marketplace we have over here in downtown? Isn't that going to be wonderful? We'll have a drive through at Starbucks. We don't have to get out and go in that terrible parking lot there. We'll be able to drive through, get coffee if you like Starbucks coffee. If you don't, you can go to McDonald's, freedom of choice. But nevertheless, if you imagine that beautiful marketplace back in the Roman times, if you would have walked through that marketplace, which is exactly what it was called, the Agora, the marketplace where people went to buy things, Inside every one of those little buildings, it would have been packed with slaves. One of the things that you could do during the Roman period is you could walk through like someone would go to the livestock market and you could purchase or bid upon human slaves, just like you would cattle. Kind of like the human trafficking thing that's going on in our world today that nobody really mentions a whole lot about. But nevertheless... People were captured inside this slave market. And you know, when you were captured there, you couldn't just decide you wanted to be freed. You had to have money and some way to buy your way out. I want you to picture yourself this morning in a slave market to sin. 
I want you to imagine that because you are a human being in flesh and because you have committed one sin, you are the ownership of Satan himself, the one who got Adam and Eve back in the garden to deceive and to try to deceive God and to sin against God. Just one sin, that's all it took. And they became ownership of him. You know, this morning, everyone listening is either in one family or the other. God's Word presents this very clearly. You are either in God's family by faith in Christ or you're in Satan's family. John chapter 8, Jesus told the religious leaders, you are of your father, the devil. So we're in one of two families, God's or the devil's this morning. So imagine you're there in that slave market, captured under sin, and you know you're guilty. You have no way to buy yourself out. And in the fullness of time, when the time was right, God sent forth his son. And why did he do that? Listen to what Paul said. To redeem those who were under the law. God's word gives the law that God gave to Israel, but Paul says that every human being is bound under the law. The Ten Commandments and the other additions, to keep them perfectly is totally impossible. We couldn't do it. We were bound, bound to the enemy. So what does a person do? They have to wait for redemption. Christ came to redeem. But you see that little word redeem right there? It has one more step in it than to purchase. That word is actually a word that means to purchase. And then are you ready for this? To set free. You have the picture. Christ went to the cross. He died. He paid completely the penalty for our sin. And then what did he do with us? He set us free. Free to do what? Whatever we want? Go out and live it up? Have our way? Do No. We are free to willingly become his bond slave. You know, Paul called himself a bond servant of Christ Jesus. Do you all know what that meant? Back in that day, you could have become a bought slave where you had to do it, or you could become a bond slave. A bond slave was a person who loved their master so much that they would allow them to come over and put their mark on them. In the Jewish world, they would take a hot awl, A-W-L, a big sharp awl, and they would take their earlobe, and they would pierce their earlobe, and they would mark it with that awl. Ear piercing in the Old Testament. Did you know that? And that would mark you as a bond slave to your master, not because you had to, but because you willingly wanted to serve them. You loved them. They were good to you. And that's what we are freed to do freed from the penalty of sin and set free to do what? To serve our Savior. Redemption. Now just take a big deep breath. If you're asleep, this is a good time to wake up. If you're not asleep and you're really paying attention, listen to these texts of Scripture. They are so wonderful with this thought of being bought and set free. In Him we have redemption through His blood. That is the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of His grace which He lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight making known to us the mystery of His will 
In other words, he knew exactly what he was doing when he redeemed you. According to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time. To unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. Jesus writes of himself, even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and give his life a what? A redemption, a ransom, to give his life to pay the price for many. 1 Corinthians 1.27 But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And because of Him, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness from God, sanctification, and redemption. Now listen to me, Christian. Do you know what those words mean this morning? Do you understand those four things? Christ Jesus became our wisdom, our righteousness, our sanctification, and our redemption. Those are big words. What does that mean? Let me boil it down for you. It means that everything that you ever need to be complete to have a right standing with God and throughout all eternity, everything you have in the person of Christ Jesus our Lord. Listen to me this morning, Christian. There's not one more thing Almighty God can give you that you don't already have in Christ Jesus. That's how rich we are this morning, those of us who have placed faith in Christ as our Savior. He is our wisdom. Don't, don't miss that. I, I don't want to get off on a rabbit trail here. There's a lot of quote-unquote wisdom floating around in the world today. But let me share something with you. He is our wisdom. And if you ever get smarter than God, you're in for trouble. I know a lot of people that think they're smarter than God this morning. Some of them teach. Some of them are in seminaries today. But I want to tell you something. God chose the foolish to confound the wise he chose the simple to confound what the strong aren't you glad this morning that god did that and the way he did it in the fullness of time god sent forth his son born of a woman what a way for god to enter the world so paul goes on to write since He is these things in our life, it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. Everything we have, we boast about because of our Savior. Galatians 3, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law. How? You all read it right here in the text. How did He do that? By becoming a what? A curse for us. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. So the question is, when Christ went to the cross, 
what did he do? He became a curse for us. And one of the results of him becoming a curse for us was the ability for him to purchase us, redeem us, and set us free to serve him forever. What a wonderful, wonderful privilege. Very clear here, right on the cross, our redemption was paid for. And then he was arguing with the the legalist here in Galatians, and he tells them, so that in Christ Jesus, the blessings of Abraham might come to the Gentiles. Well, what was the blessings of Abraham? Justification by faith. Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. We believe in Christ, and what happens? We don't get to obey the law. We trust in Christ, and we get the Spirit. The Holy Spirit who lives in our heart to produce the fruit of the Spirit. No longer the fruit of the flesh. See, that's what happens when we place faith in Christ. Paul writes in Colossians, He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of His Son in whom we have redemption. That is the forgiveness of sins. Wow. I was thinking this past week about how thankful we should be as forgiven people. And you know, the saying in the New Testament is true, he who sins much has much to be thankful for when they're forgiven. And I always heard J. Vernon McGee, I always loved to listen to Dr. McGee when I was here in town, because he was so honest about who he was. And he would talk about how rotten he was. Here's an older man that's lived his whole life, preached, went through the Bible, I mean, just... J. Vernon McGee did it about all. And he would talk about how rotten he really was. And I always wondered when I first went into ministry why an older man would talk like that. And you know, the older you get, the more you truly realize that the closer to God you are, the more rotten we really are. You know, I'm sorry I'm not here to help you in self-esteem this morning. I'm here to help you in good theology. Good theology. The closer we get to God and the closer we are to the light, the more we realize the blemishes and the breaks in our life, in our character, all of the things. And yet Almighty God, in His grace, knew exactly what He was doing when He redeemed you and me. And He purchased us, folks. You. He purchased you as his own and he did that so that he could set you free and that you would take up your life and give it right back to him as a believer this is not about going out and doing what you want to this is about realizing the grace of God and what he's done for us and as a result of that grace we give him our life back John the apostle writes From Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, and the ruler of the kings of the earth, to him who loves us, and here's the word redemption, and has freed us from our sins by his blood, and made us a kingdom of priests to God and Father. To him be glory and dominion forever and ever. There is redemption spelled out. Freed us. I mean, that would, make a, that would make a Baptist, at least in their heart, shout, thank you, God. 
thank you for redemption. You know the old hymn that we sing, Redeem, redeem, redeem by the blood of the Lamb. And I won't dare do the rest, but redeem, redeemed. His child and forever I am. There's some good theology in that. The third thing I want you to know is adoption. Adoption. Timing, redemption, and adoption. And I'm simply going to summarize it by this. A lot of people confuse adoption. But adoption is basically when you realize you can enjoy the family. In the Roman world, a man would go out and adopt a child and bring that child in. And just like in our own home, that child, though it was adopted, was never enabled to fully enjoy its father's, his father's wealth. Same thing's true with our children. You know, those of us who are parents do what? We, we give our children uh, an heirship. If Karen and I were to die, our children would inherit everything that we have. Now, they get to enjoy some of the benefits of that now, but not fully. So in one sense, everything we have is theirs because as soon as we die, it goes to our children. But in another sense, they don't have full ownership of it yet. Does that make sense? That is the same thing that happens in the Christian life. We have partial ownership of our adoption. But the point is this. When we realize what it means that we have the adoption of Christ Jesus, we can actually begin to enjoy in our life the things that are to come. Right now, we have the promise of the Spirit living inside of us. Soon to come, we will have what? The redemption of our bodies. You know, when you're 20, 25, 30... You don't think about the redemption of your body. You're like, yeah, yeah, I'm, I'm pretty happy with what I got now. In the fullness of time, <laughs> that will change. And the older you get and the closer you get to glory, the more you realize God made us to live forever. Every human being, you look in their eyes, they are an eternal being. They are eternal, and they will have an, a body for all eternity. Every human being. And God made us to glorify Him. Some of us, thankful, thankfully we've trusted Christ our Savior. We're going to enjoy Christ and a, an eternal kingdom on a new heaven and a new earth. But I want you to listen to this because it's so severe. There will be other people who reject God as Savior, who will be resurrected in a body. And they will have to suffer for all eternity. You know why? Because they reject the redemption that is for them in Christ Jesus. Instead of allowing Christ to pay for their sin and buy them out of the slave market, listen to me, they enjoy a few days of slavery. Maybe you're here this morning. Or maybe you're watching and you think that your sin is so fun. I've got news for you. Those days are going to end. And Almighty God in His grace offers redemption. A payout, if you will. A ransom. 
has set you free, not, not only from the penalty of sin against God, but also the power of sin in your life. You trust Christ as your Savior and you have the Holy Spirit living inside of you. He enables us to fight the battle of sin. And pretty soon, folks, He's going to totally, totally release us at the redemption of our bodies from the presence of sin. We'll never have to worry about sinning again. Won't that be wonderful? Never will we ever think about telling a lie, stretching the truth, trying to be something we're not. And it's all because of the redemption and the sanctification that we have in Christ Jesus. What a wonderful, wonderful Savior. Warren Wiersbe writes, Christians have experienced the first stage of adoption. We have been purchased by Christ and indwelt by the Spirit. We are awaiting the second stage, the public declaration at the return of Christ, when we shall be like Him. We are sons and we are heirs. And the best part of our inheritance is yet to come. This morning, you and I are just waiting on the fullness of time. And I want you to hear me and hear me close. Almighty God has a timetable in which Christ Jesus is going to step out on the clouds of heaven and he's going to call his people home. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, 13 through 18. That's going to happen. And the dead in Christ shall rise first and we who are alive and remain shall be caught up with them together in the air to meet the Lord. And so shall we ever be with the Lord. He's coming. And we don't know when. You look around our world today. Do you all know what is happening? Our world is a chaotic mess. And I want you to hear me. It's ripe for the coming of the Savior. Are you ready? Father, thank you this morning for Christ Jesus and the redemption we have in him. I pray, O oh Father, that you'll bless your word this morning in our hearts, that we might receive it, accept it, and those of us who have would rejoice in the great redemption that we have in Christ Jesus. We are so thankful for our Savior this morning, Lord. Thank you that he came in your time. He came for your purpose and he came to fulfill your plan, which you graciously allowed us to be a part of. And for that, we're thankful. And we praise your name this morning. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.